Good morning. My name is Sean Sears. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Church. I want to say thank you very much for being here. Uh, we don't take it for granted that you showed up at, at our church family uh, to be here with us this, this weekend. There's a lot of other great churches in the area, so thank you very much for coming. Uh, we're in the third week of our Haunted House series. The idea behind the series is that there are things uh, in our lives that create anxiety and fear. Uh, that threaten to keep us from becoming uh, the people that God intended us to be. And I don't think the idea here is that you should never feel any fear at all. I think some fear is completely healthy. Uh, you should be afraid of really big, uh, loud barking dogs with sharp teeth. Am I right? Yes or no? Uh, how many of you guys are afraid of big dogs? Raise your hand if you're afraid of big dogs. How many of you bought a big dog so everybody else would be afraid of you? Anybody? All right, just, just checking. Uh, I, got a, I got a little dog that thinks she's a big dog. Uh, she's Roxy, and, and she's a, 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 um, a, a Yorkie, a Yorkshire, right? Yorkie? Yorkie and Yorkshire, are they the same thing? She's just a stupid dog. That's the only point I'm trying to get to. She's a little dog. She's a cat-sized dog. If a cat had eaten three other cats, like that's, I got a fat little dog, and she thinks she's big, and uh, she's got, we don't have a fence around our yard, so we put her on a chain, or, or, or lead is what my wife calls it, because it sounds a little bit more sophisticated than a chain, uh, and then she runs out to do her business, and then when other dogs walk by, big dogs, my dog is like, rah, 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 and my dog acts like she can, she can get, and she don't scare nobody. She don't scare nobody. Uh, this morning, I gave her a chance to like, 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 like stand up for herself. I let her in the backyard. Uh, we have a cat uh, that, that is our neighbor's cat. Actually, my neighbor is here on the front row. And her cat comes over to my yard to torture my dog. <laughs> and this cat knows exactly how long my dog's lead is. And she sits on our back porch, like our back deck, which is on the other side of the driveway, like all confident and cocky. Just like this, like just like the very end of her tail is just like this. You know how little cats do that when they think they're better than everybody? They freaking hate cats. They're the devil. It's in the Bible. I can't find it, but I know it's in there. I know it's in there. If, snake, if Satan wasn't going to be in a snake in the garden, it was going to be a cat. I'm telling you. He just couldn't find a cat because the cat thought it was too good for Satan. Sorry, I don't know where that came from. That was weird. I hate cats. So I, I let, so that cat was just sitting on that back deck, and I, and I brought Roxy out without the lead. <laughs> and she ran from that cat. <laughs> Embarrassed of my dog. She's humiliating. And don't, man, you got ugh, all bark, no bite. So embarrassed. Uh, actually, she's old. She doesn't have any teeth anyway, so she's just going to gum it. <laughs> Just get the cat slobbery is all she was going to do. Uh, you should be afraid of like walking into traffic, right? Like you should be afraid of heights without railings. Uh, you should be afraid of like, like there's things you should be, you should be afraid of really dark alleys when you're carrying your Christmas shopping bags. Like there are places you should be afraid and that's not the problem. The problem is sometimes the things that we're afraid of and what that fear motivates us to do or the things that it keeps us from doing. We said in the first week of the series that faith and fear are the exact same thing and uh, that they are both uh, the confidence that something will happen that hasn't happened yet. Uh, fear is that. Fear is the confidence that something will happen that hasn't happened yet. Uh, like you getting caught or them dying or like my, my daughter this past week, she got a 63 on a medical surgery exam. And she called, like crying, like the world was over. She got a 63 on a medical surgery exam. I was like, 
you got a 63 on a medical surgical exam. Like, I wouldn't have got a single. I'm impressed you got over half of them right. You go, girl. Right? She's crying. I'm like, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst? Right? And she was all like, like she, okay, she wasn't really crying. She just really worried and didn't want to tell me. She's afraid we we're going to be all upset. And I was like, what's the worst that could happen? She goes, well, I, I have to, she goes, well, I, I just have to get, I have to get above an 80 on my next two tests. I'm like, oh, that, that's, I said, well, what's the, and then I was like, okay, well, then just do that. But what if I don't? I said, but what if you do? Right? So she was, the fear was controlling her. She was confident that something would happen that hadn't happened. Well, I know that her low score on this test is going to motivate. I know my daughter. She's going to do fine, right? I'm just saying, but she was being controlled by fear because she was confident that she was going to fail two tests that she hasn't even gotten the content for. Like She has no idea, but her fear of something that hadn't, her expectation that it all would go bad was ruining her ability to act in the present. Right? That's what, that's what fear, fear does for it. It exaggerates our problems, that, and that's, that's what it does. Faith, on the other hand, is also uh, a confidence in something that hasn't happened yet. The switch, though, is that you're confident, not that it all works out great, but your confidence is that no matter how it works out, God saw this coming, he's prepared for it, and he's already worked it into the story for my good and his glory. That's it. That's it. That's the confidence. So that's, that switch, it, all it takes to make that switch from fear to faith is changing your expectation. Not in the outcomes, but who's in control of whatever happens with the outcome. And that's why God says, don't be afraid over 360 times. It's the number one command in the whole Bible. Don't be afraid. 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 Why? Because your fear says things about God that you're not intending to say, but it does. Your fear says God's lost control. Your fear says he didn't see this coming. Your fear says he's powerless to do anything about this. And your fear says that he can't even do anything good with this. And God says, I'm tired of that. I'm tired of that. It might go bad, but I can do, I can work with bad. Like I can, I can do stuff with this. Like we freak out because we didn't see it coming. God ain't up in heaven going, angels, scramble. I didn't see them getting cancer. Quick, what are we going to do? Like God knew. He knew. He's prepared. So my confidence doesn't come from the fact that I can manipulate the outcome. My confidence comes from the fact that he knows the outcome and has already manipulated it into my story. That's where the faith comes from. That's how I make, I make that, that switch. Last week we talked about the fear of rejection and how that now my fear of what you think about me is becoming a radar to point out the places in my life where I've taken God out of control. Because when I'm more afraid... When I'm afraid of what you're going to think about me, what I'm saying is that my value comes more from your opinion of me than what God has said about me. What I've done is I've taken God and his word off the throne of my life, and I put you and your opinion there. I'm not okay with that. You don't control me. But we give control to people all the time because we're afraid of what they think. 
We, our circumstances, the, the same thing. This, my job is the source of, 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 of my provision, my security. My boss is, is my, my provision. So I, I need him to like me so that I can provide for my family. No, you need to do right. And if your boss wants to kick you to the curb, guess who's got you? Right? God. And it's our fear of what other people think that causes us sometimes to act in ways that are inconsistent with our own conscience. Right? That's what we talked about last week. This week we're talking about the fear of failure. And I think that this hits us in, in different ways. Uh, I think some of us are like, I'm not really afraid to fail. I'll try anything. I'm crazy. Yeah, because you're crazy. That's why you're not afraid of failure, right? Some of us, you're like, you'll climb up to the top of the diving board and jump, and they didn't even fill it up with water yet, right? Like, you don't even care because you're crazy, right? But I think most of us struggle with the fear of failure in some way or another. Now, my wife and I are wired in completely different ways. I'm an extrovert, so I'm a little bit more. Uh, I don't know if it's because I'm an extrovert, actually. I, I thought it was because of that, that I'm, I'm a little bit more comfortable with risk than she is. But then there are other introverted people who are more risky than some extroverted people. So I don't think this has anything to do with personality. I don't think it has anything to do with that at, that at all. I just think some of us uh, are just more accustomed to it for whatever, like I said, because some of us are a little bit more crazy, uh, maybe. But, but this fear of failure strikes us in different ways. So I asked my wife this week, when you think about big things that you need to do that you're afraid of doing, Doing because you might fail, what are you actually afraid of? And she said, I'm afraid of letting people down. And I was like, I don't care about people, so that's not my problem at all. <laughs> no, but that's not how it hits me. And so for her, this teaching on the fear of failure is actually a little bit of a fear of rejection part two, right? It's kind of that. So I'm not going to try big things because I'm afraid of letting people down. And she said, I'm afraid of letting God down, right? Um, for me, it wasn't, it's not that at all. It's not that I'm afraid of, of letting people down. It's, a, it's that I'm afraid of, I'm, a, I'm afraid of humility. It's, it's about, it's my, my wife is sweet. Like when she doesn't want to fail, it's about you, right? Uh, when I, I don't, I don't want to be humiliated and embarrassed. It's, it's about me. Right? Like, I, I have this driving need. Uh, I'm a three on the Enneagram, so I need to be successful, right? And so I'll, I'll, I'll be tempted to not try difficult things because I might fail at that. And what does that say about me to me? Right? So it's that fear of failing uh, and that attacking my confidence that sometimes keeps, keeps me back. Um, yeah, so for me, it's about, it's about uh, a humiliation and the way this affects the way I see myself. Others of us, that's, that's, not, that's not in your thinking at all. For you, if, if you're less likely uh, to succeed at it or you're not confident that this is going to go well, uh, you don't have no time to mess around. So you're not going to waste the time, the, the energy. And, and there are some situations where, where that's true for me. There's a family member that um, I'm, I'm, I'm not in a healthy place with. And uh, I, that family member doesn't really reach out to me, and I don't really reach out to that person, and we happen to be married. No, I'm just kidding. It's not my wife at all. That'd be horrible. She's actually in this service. That'd be horrible. She's like, Sean, stop it. That's not funny. Someone's going to think that's true. Uh, but, there's a, but there is a family member that I'm, I'm at odds with, and I, I don't see them all the time. Actually, it's been, it's been a few years since I've seen them, but I can't get away from them. They're, they're, they're family, and I've, I've already, man, I've gone to this person multiple times to try to reconcile this relationship, and I'm, and I'm pretty much done at, at this point. Um, but getting ready for the weekend's teaching... 
uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not because, um, yeah. I, the reason why is because I just don't think it's going to go any different. So why, why try? So it's not so much a fear of, yeah, I'm a feel, fear of failure a little. It's not so much fear. I'm just confident that it's not going, like, what's going to change? Like, I've already tried to reconcile this relationship many times, and it hasn't gone anywhere. And every time I go talk to this person, they ramp up the drama and metaphorically and verbally just throat punch me the whole time we're talking. I'm freaking tired of that. So I'm just, I'm 100% confident that this is a waste of my time is what I am. But are they? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> the sinful part of me wants to write them off. But the part of me that's trying to be transformed into the image of God says, no, your confidence that it won't work out isn't good enough excuse to not try to work it out. Because I don't know. This family member now has health issues. They most likely will die now before I do. And what I can't do is get to their funeral knowing that I didn't try one more time because I was 100% confident it wasn't going to work out. Because I don't know. What I do know is that I'm not even trying anymore. I've written them off. I even told the person, it doesn't matter, I want to get too specific. I'm just saying, but it's my confidence that this isn't going to do any good. And my fear of having to go through all the drama and the crap, and I, I just, I don't want it. But crap, I have to do it. Because I'm preaching about it. So now I have to. <laughs> um, last week, some of you guys put on your prayer cards that you've got big decisions coming up in your career, your family, and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to determine what God wants you to do and your fear of making the wrong decision has got you in a place right now where you're stuck. When it comes to our fear of failure, I think there's two sides to this, though, and I think we're only probably going to have time to deal with one of the sides uh, today, and then we'll deal with the other side of it uh, in your life groups this next week, but I think there's the fear that this isn't going to work out. So I, I, I can't make the decision yet because I'm afraid it's, it's going to fail. I'm not, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And I never get ready. And then I think that there's the other side of the fear of failure where we've tried it. It didn't go good. It failed. And now we feel like our failure is going to permanently define us or has permanently ruined us. I think the easiest example I can think of this is divorce. You got married, never intending to get divorced, and you gave 100% of yourself to it, it just didn't work out, and you tried to save the marriage, and, and then it, the relationship died, and it has permanently hurt you, and, and now the fear is that, like, you're not going to be happy again. Or it's all crap anyway. Or we feel like this failure has permanently ruined some piece of us and we can never be, be happy again. Or, we, we, or maybe you just feel so much guilt over some other type of failure that you feel has permanently 
stained your heart or soul that has made you unusable to God maybe or unlovable to other people. And that's what I, that side of it, we're not going to be able to get to until life groups. And you won't be talking about anything specific. We're just going to look at somebody else who did something that you would think would be permanently irredeemable. And then how Jesus responded to that person. You guys will be looking at that in life group this week. But I want to deal with those of us who are on this side of a decision that we haven't made yet. And we haven't made it because we are 100% confident it won't go well. Or we're just afraid that it might not it might not go, go well. We're going to look at a guy in, in the Bible uh, named Jonathan. If you've got your Bible, go to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. Two weeks ago, we talked about Moses. Last week, we talked about Joshua. This is about four or 500 years later. Uh, they, were now, they, were, they had been led over these previous few hundred years uh, by judges, uh, both men and women judges. They, they weren't the, the spiritual leaders of the people. They had high priests during that time. Uh, but they were the, the uh, political leaders of the people of Israel. And they now find themselves in a place where the Philistines, who, live, uh, who lived in what is modern day the Gaza Strip, and uh, had, had conquered all of Israel and were making them slaves. And they'd been slaves for a couple of decades. And uh, they were miserable. And rather than calling out to God uh, for repentance and forgiveness, and then asking God what to do next, uh, they came to Samuel, who was their new leader, and they asked, they asked Samuel, uh, who was the last judge of Israel, uh, they asked him, we, I know, we know the solution. The solution is a king. So God chooses for them uh, Saul. Saul was, the Bible says, head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And the Bible says he was the most attractive man in all of Israel. So homeboy, woo, it's a pretty man, pretty man. When Disney sits down to write a prince, it was this dude they drew. That's this guy. And one of the early tests that Samuel had made on him was that, all right, listen, God's, God's going to deliver Israel now. So what you need to do is you need to tell everybody to gather together at Gilgal and wait for me. And on the seventh day, I'm going to get there. We'll make a sacrifice to God as a payment for the sins of Israel. We'll clean our hearts. Uh, and then, then we'll ask God what to do next. And we'll follow his instructions. And God will bring deliverance for his people. Uh, so a lot of people show up at Gilgal uh, that week, and they're all waiting, and Saul's saying, you know, please don't go. Samuel will be here on the seventh day. Samuel will be here. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. So everybody's there. Kind of, they, they, you know, they, they like King Saul. They're glad he's their king, but they know they need God's blessing. So they, they're waiting on Samuel to show up. And on the seventh day, Samuel doesn't show up. It's noon. Samuel still ain't here. It's afternoon. Samuel still ain't here. And people start to go home. And this does something in Saul. Saul becomes 100% confident that he can't win without everybody. His fear of failure, his 100% confidence that something would happen that hasn't happened yet, that this was all going to end badly, motivated him to disobey God and the instructions from Samuel. And he offered the sacrifice to God without Samuel. And as he was finishing his prayers... Samuel walks up, and he's like, what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I didn't think you were coming, and I knew we needed God's blessing, so I thought I would disobey him and get up myself, right? As if that was going to bring God's blessings, and Samuel says, listen, because you've done this, you're going to be the last one in your lineage, your bloodline to ever be king. And we know that he eventually uh, anoints David to be the next king, King David, the giant, the, the, the slingshot, that guy, uh, he becomes the next king. Saul's got a son named Jonathan. 
And Jonathan does not make the same mistakes as his father, which is a really cool thing. Uh, and, and we're going to be in uh, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 14, actually. Chapter 14 is where I'm starting. Uh, chapter, chapter 14. Uh, you can read chapter 13. You find out that, that there's only 600 uh, farmer soldiers around. Uh, in chapter 13, verses, uh, uh, verse 19, it says that the Philistines, that there were no blacksmiths in all of Israel because the Philistines were afraid that if the Hebrews had blacksmiths, they would make for themselves swords and spears. So they would have to, if they, if they had plow, uh, you know, uh, whatever, like the, the, the sickle, the scythe, the sickle, whatever that thing is, uh, right? The sheaving thing. I'm not a farmer. Can you tell? I'm not a farmer. Uh, but if they needed things sharpened, they had to go to Philistine blacksmiths to get this done. So there were 600 farmer warriors who've got nothing but, but, but uh, rakes, pitchforks, and sticks. That's, that's all they've got to fight with. Uh, and then that's where we pick it up in chapter 14, verse 1. Uh, one day, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, uh, Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come on, uh, let's go to where these Philistines have their outpost. Uh, but Jonathan didn't tell his dad what he was doing. So here's what Jonathan does. Jonathan is, is one of the 600 people that his dad has with him ready to fight against the Philistines, uh, these farmer soldiers. Uh, but he's tired of waiting. And so Jonathan says to his armor bearers, hey, man, let's just go find, a, find an outpost. Let's go find a garrison. Let's go find an outcrop. Like, we, we know where the army is. There are tens of thousands of army, their soldiers around the other side of the mountain. But we also know that they've got outposts that they can watch us. Let's just walk up to one of them outposts with 20 dudes in it, and let's just see what happens. Let's just go do this. Uh, should we tell your dad? No, don't tell my dad. Uh, let's just go. That's chapter 14, verse 1. Verse 4 says this. Uh, to reach the Philistine outpost, Jonathan had to go down between two rocky cliffs that were called Bozes and Sina. The cliff on the north was in front of Michmash, and the one on the south was in front of Geba. Uh, and let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has few war many warriors or only a few. What's the key word in that verse to you? You know what the key word for that verse is to me? <laughs> Perhaps. Maybe. That's insane. You and one other dude who have no official warrior training at all. You're going to go attack a company of trained, seasoned, hardened Philistine warrior of 20 people. Like, you're going to go attack them with two people. And the best speech you can come up with is, maybe we won't die. Listen, if you've got a 50% chance of dying, whatever you're about to do, my encouragement to you is to not do that thing, whatever that is. If there's a 50-50 chance, you do this, you're fine, you do this, or you die, I say you wait until you find a third option for failure. That's what I'm thinking. Like, what gave him the confidence? Holy cow. Like, the odds are against you. And the likelihood of failure is high. And the consequences for failure are severe. And homeboy's not slowing down at all for that. Here's the thing. You don't see in this passage at all that God even told him to do this. He's volunteering. He never has any special word from God. God never said, go do this. He gets this idea in his head, and he's not an idiot. He knows there's a chance he's going to fail. And if he fails, it's not like we can pull back, regroup, and attack them from another angle. 
It's we get one shot, and if we fail, I get stabbed to death with spears. Ha! Let's go. Okay, homeboy was crazy. Where does he get that kind of confidence? That's what I want to know. What did he know that I don't know? And that's what we're going to spend our time talking about. What does he know that, that I, I, don't, I don't know? What are you facing right now? What is the thing in front of you, the opportunity, the decision, the broken thing that needs to be fixed, that you're considering getting yourself involved in, that you believe has a likelihood of failure, and the consequences for failure is high. So you're sitting in the valley still. You're not willing to attack. What is that for you? Last week, you guys started filling out those prayer request cards, the cards on the bottom of your communication card that, where you can invite us to pray with you about stuff. And so uh, our office manager gets all of those and puts those on the spreadsheet. And then what she'll do is she'll divide it up into 20, you know, fifths. And so this pastor gets those 20%, and I get this 20%. Another pastor gets that 20%. Now, I can see everybody's prayer requests. So what I do is I scan through all the prayer requests to see, are there any, like, blazing emergencies here that we need to take care of? And then I spend the rest of my week praying for that 20% that's assigned to me. So in reading through all of your prayer requests, I know that there are a few things that you guys are facing. You guys told me that you're facing reconciliation with a person that you're at odds with that you don't want to confront. You're in the same situation as me. Some of you guys are praying about relocating your family to take a new job. And the consequences are high. Excuse me, the likelihood of, I mean, there's a good chance this might not, there's a 50-50 chance it's going to go great. There's a 50-50 chance it won't. And your kids are involved in this decision and a spouse. Like there's, there's shrapnel involved in this. Some of you guys are talking about moving to a cheaper part of the country to pay off debt. Some of you guys just got out of really, really, really unhealthy relationships, and you're wondering whether or not you should start dating again. And if you do start dating, who should you start dating? And is that person even out there? Am I going to be alone the rest of my life? Maybe you're considering launching a new career, going back to college, starting a new business. Some of you guys are honestly considering whether or not you should get more involved in this church family because the last church you were involved with, it went sideways, very unhealthy, and you're afraid that as long as you just show up here and then go home and don't stick out your neck too far, you can stay under the illusion that this is a good church, but you're 100% confident that if you start to get involved, it's going to go sideways like every other place you've ever served at. Others of you, no doubt, there's some of you, maybe just a few, you know that God's called you to maybe walk away from something so that you can spend more time with either your family or spend more time actually leveraging your life for the kingdom of God in some way, and you're, you're afraid of doing that. I want to talk about five things that Jonathan knew that I think that if you knew also might make it easier for you to make a decision. Two of these things are implied. They're not in the text, but they're implied in the text. And the other three are in the text. So I'd like to give you the two that are implied first, and then I'll share with you the three that are in there. What I want you to do is I want you to take out your communication card. I want you to flip it over to the back side. I want you to write down these five things that, saw, that Jonathan knew. And at the end of the teaching, what I want you to do is I want you to underline the one that you feel you need to remember most, because this is going to be the one that helps you most. The first thing I think that Jonathan knew was that he knew that his life wasn't of greater worth than the greater good. What Jonathan knew is that there are some things that are worth dying for. There are some things that even if you failed, 
miserably was still worth you trying to fix. That's it. Here's the thing. I know that if John, he was willing to die. And he knew that even if he died, it was okay because the cause was of greater value than his life. And for us, there's a lot of us who don't have a cause we live for because truthfully, there's no cause we'll die for. You know why? Because we're not willing to sacrifice anything for anyone. We crave comfort. And I'm telling you, your and my desire for comfort and security is directly at odds with our growth and our success. 100%. Show me anybody who did anything above average making average decisions. Show me anybody who got an extraordinary life without making extraordinary choices. Show me anybody who succeeded greatly who did not have to sacrifice greatly. But what I don't want is struggle. What I don't want is pain. So I avoid it. And the truth is, we work our butts off to make sure we're never in a position where we actually have to depend on God to show up. So you know what? He don't. In our finances, we ain't risking nothing for God. In our relationships, we ain't risking for nothing for God. In our reputations, ain't risking nothing for God. Why? Because it might not work out, and I don't want that shade on me. I don't want to financially have to tighten the belt. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to do without. So I'm going to say no. C.S. Lewis says there's only two types of people in the world. Those who say, God, your will be done in my life. And those to whom God says, fine, your will be done for your life. God ain't going to force himself. But the truth is, you don't grow unless you're willing to struggle. The muscle don't build up till you tear the muscle down. You don't want to get skint knees? You're going to be a grown adult riding your bike with training wheels. Your struggle is 100% necessary to your growth. And it is our aversion to pain that is keeping us from becoming the people that God intended us to be. I love what Teddy Roosevelt had to say about this. Teddy Roosevelt said, it is not the critic who counts. Not the person who says what you all did wrong and how you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have tried that. What were you thinking? Why would you even think that you could? You know that person? If you can't think of that person, you might be that person. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the other person stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done those deeds better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the game, whose face is muddied by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who fails, who comes short again and again because there's no success without coming short and without failure who spends himself on a worthy cause, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, even if he fails, at least failed while trying something great, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory 
nor defeat. The bleh. I'm tired of living a lifeless life. Surely you can't be okay with a lifeless life. Just one day after the next day, after the next day, after the next day. Afraid, 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 afraid. Constantly afraid. Constantly working to secure and protect yourself from, from everything that'll make you more than this. Working your butt off. Not to put yourself in jeopardy. Not to obey God when he calls you to do something scary. Because it might not work out. Yeah, you're right, it might not. But you know what's worse than that? Doing nothing. Which is the second thing that he did. He knew that failure wasn't the worst thing that could happen. Nothing happening was worse. Nothing happening was worse. Jonathan knew that this couldn't be what God wanted. It can't be that God's desire is for the Philistines who sacrificed their living children to demon gods by burning them alive or ruling God's people. There's no way in the world God can be okay with this. Somebody's got to do something. Why not me? That's Jonathan. Somebody's got to do something. I'm going to tell you this, when you recognize the need is when God starts preparing you to meet that need. It's you. Somebody needs to do something, and you are 100% right. Somebody does. Guess who? You. You're the one. Your family may be unhealthy, and you may not be able to fix it, but dang it, you have got. To try. Because the way your family is right now isn't right. Your question isn't what's easy, what's safe. Your question is what is right? Somebody's got to do that. And if nobody else, if somebody else is doing it, bro, then help them out. Jump on their train. Help it to go faster, farther. But if ain't nobody got that train going, bro, get your butt on the tracks. I know your butt can't actually ride on a track. I know, but I used the train thing. I started it. I had to finish it. <laughs> You're concerned about the children of immigrants in our city that did not choose on their own to stay past their visas and do not have citizenship and have no future. And you're right. Somebody needs to do something. <laughs> Guess who it is? It's you. You feel horrible for the 10,000 children in foster care in our state alone and the 7,000 of them who slept in group homes last night. And more families, more healthy families, more Christian families are to be foster parents. Somebody needs to raise the awareness for this. You're right. Guess who? <laughs> it's you. You might fail, but doing nothing is not an option. Jonathan knew that God wouldn't fix it until someone had the faith to address it. He knew the current reality did not please God. Someone had to do something, and his fear was replaced by faith 
because of his confidence that God was going to call somebody to do it. Dang it, I'll volunteer. There's a guy in our church who's a five-star chef. Worked at high-end restaurants in downtown Boston. Like high-end. I'm talking about the kind where it's got all those different courses. I was going to say five course, but it might be seven course. I don't know. I don't eat at those kind of restaurants. Right? Maybe once a year or whatever. You know those kind of restaurants? He's the head chef at those things. He's got good jobs at chef places. Like, like that's, that's his jam. But on his way into the city every day, he sees all these people who ain't eat nothing at all. And he starts thinking, somebody needs to do something for them. I, I didn't think about that. I don't care about people. No, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't go into this city. I do I stinking hate driving into this city. It's nuts, right? But he's seen this every day, 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 every day. And he's grown in his relationship with God. And God goes, you're a chef. Fix it. Yeah, but if I do, I have to quit my high-paying six-figure job. Did I put you here to make six figures? Or did I put you here to make a difference? He quit his job, and he started a restaurant in Brockton for homeless people that's free on the condition that they come in early and learn how to cook the food or stay late and help clean it. <laughs> it opens up in November. Somebody needs to fix this. You're dang right they do. Guess who? You. What do you see in the world that's broken? What do you say? Somebody needs to do something. What is it? What is it? You've seen it. You've seen it. You've said it to somebody. I hate that. It shouldn't be like that. Somebody needs to fix it. What is it? Maybe it's in your family. Maybe it's in your community. Maybe it's in your school. Maybe it's at work. Somebody needs to do something. And you are 100% right. Somebody does. Guess who? You. I might fail. Yes! You might fail. It'll be embarrassing. Yes! You might be embarrassed. But dang it, there are some things that are worth your tiny feelings. And if you don't, who will? Dear God, I hope you get fired so that God can get somebody else into your job who will fix it. Sorry, that was really... <laughs> You're like, whoa, easy killer. Get all personal. I'm going to say, why do you think God put you there? Why do you think he gave you your assets, your abilities, your skills, your talent, your connections for you? God worships you? Is that how this is? Because, bro, that ain't what I see. I see that those who follow Jesus are willing to lay everything down to follow him. That's why Jesus said, what he said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, set down his selfish ways, take up his cross, get comfortable with sacrifice. Getting over your selfishness, your desire for comfort, your aversion to pain, and being willing to actually do without and to sacrifice are 100% necessary to becoming a follower of Jesus. They're conditions. Matthew 16, 24. If anyone wants to come after me, let him set aside his selfish ways, take up his cross and follow me. If you can't get over your selfishness and you keep running from the sacrifice that's going to make you the person God intended you to be, you ain't following Jesus. You're just not. You're religious, probably, 
You're just not following Jesus. Which brings me to the third thing. He knew he needed backup. 1 Samuel 14, 6-7. Let's go across to the outpost of those pagans. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, perhaps the Lord will help us. For nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Do what you think is best, the armor bearer said. I'm with you completely, whatever you decide. You started this train, bro. I'm riding it with you to the end. Let's go. I don't even know if the tracks are built yet over the ravine. Then I guess we're going over to the ravine. But dang it, we're going. Let's go. He had backup. He knew not to do this alone. He could have when this idea popped into his head. He could have left his father's army all by himself and gone and attacked this, this, this Philistine garrison by himself. But he didn't because he knew I need at least one person backing me up. This is biblical. Jesus, when he sent out the 70 disciples in Luke chapter 10, the Bible says he sent them out two by two. In the book of Acts, when everybody went around starting churches all over the Roman Empire, you won't find any of them doing it by himself. They always had a crew. Everybody was always with somebody. Ecclesiastes chapter 4 verse 9 explains this. Two people are better off than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person fails, the other person can reach out and help. But someone who fails alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one person be warm alone? A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquered. Three are even better for a triple crated triple Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers and a peck of pickled peppers Peter Piper picked. There are even three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily broken. I would say the scarier the obstacle, the more difficult the task, the more likely you need somebody else to be doing this with you. You ain't got to solve the world's problems on your own. You got us. You got backup. And dang it, you need backup. Good counsel. After teaching this teaching now for the third time this weekend, I know for a fact I'm going to have to call this person this week. So I'm going to seek counsel from a friend Actually, I say friend because I'm trying to keep it generic, but it's a family member who's closer to that person than I am. I'm going to seek counsel. How should I start this conversation? What should I not bring up? Right? Because I need backup. I need help. I don't, truthfully, if I did it on my own, I think I'd make some stupid mistakes because I'm broken. I need somebody who's healthier than me in certain areas in my that, that I'm not as healthy. People who are smarter than me in certain areas of my life where I'm not as smart as they are. I'm going to get backup. I'll even say this. If you can't get anyone else to go with you, then maybe it's a bad idea. Maybe you shouldn't do it. Can you just put that out there? That if you can't, something needs to be, something's broken needs to be fixed, and you can't get one person to do it with you, then you might not be the person to drive the train, find somebody else's train who's already riding, and you get on theirs. But don't do this by yourself. Jonathan didn't. He knew he shouldn't. Could God do this? Yeah, he could. But you know what is wise? What is wise is for me to get one other person, at least one person. I need one person just to make sure, just to make sure. Which brings me to the fourth thing. He knew he needed boundaries. He knew he needed a safety valve, a kickout switch, something like that. He knew he needed to stay flexible, and he knew he'd have to adapt he didn't get this fool-headed idea in his, in his brain and then charge after it. No, I already said I'm doing it, and I'm doing it. I'm going to die trying, right? If it's a bad idea, it's a bad idea, right? Dude, like, give it a shot, but dang it, if you need to back up and give it a shot from that way instead, then give it a shot from that way instead. 
If you need to come out with another angle, then come out from another angle. If you need to back out until you got more funding or more volunteers, then back up and get more funding. Don't be an idiot just because you're too proud, right, to restart or to come at it from a different angle next time. Here's what he says, 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 8. All right, then Jonathan told him, we'll cross over and we'll let them see us. <laughs> that doesn't sound like a good idea. You're in a valley. They're in a fortified position up on top of a hill. I say, you come around, you flank them, you get above them, and then like you wait for one of them to go to the bathroom, and then you like get him when he's pooping or something like that, just like, you know, like a sneak attack. You don't come out and go, hey, to the bad guys. I just, that's, that's what he says. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to just walk up that hill, and we're going to say, hey. <laughs> but I'm the armor bearer. is like, should we get some counsel on this move first is what I'm thinking. So we're going we're gonna to let them see us. If they say, stay where you are, we'll kill you, uh, then we'll stop and we'll not go up to them. And I think that's a bad idea too. If they say, stay right there, we'll kill you, I would say, then we will run back home is what we will do. But he says, then we'll just stop. That's what we'll do. And, and, uh, and we'll not go up to them. But if they say, come on up and fight, then we'll go up. That'll be the Lord's sign that he will, he will help us defeat them. Wait, the Lord's sign is that you're not going to stay on level ground where the fighting odds are a little bit more even. The Lord's sign is that you're going to have to run uphill and fight against a garrison while they're fighting downhill. That, that's the sign. They were aware that God's path may and most often is the harder road to walk. That's what they knew. And it's been true in my life that my obedience to God is almost always going to be the more difficult road to walk. It's going to require more sacrifice. Some of us have had opportunities to do something and we backed out because we saw the price that we were going to have to pay in order to do this. And we said, I don't think God's in this because of what I'm going to have to go through in order to do it. As though God's goal is to make your life easy. That's horrible parenting. We know this for our kids. Why would God do that to us? What I know is that your success is impossible without your struggle. That's what I know. What I know is that the struggle gives you the ability to succeed. That's what I know. What I know is that Jesus said, there's a wide road that leads to destruction, and it's wide because everybody's on it. And there's a narrow road that leads to life, and it's narrow because the few that find it. What I know is, those who follow Jesus must deny themselves, must get over their selfishness, must get comfortable with personal and costly sacrifice in order to follow Jesus. That's what I actually know. The entire journey of faith is the tension between risk and comfort. And if your faith right now is not costing you anything, then can you honestly say that you're living by it? What are you doing with your money out of obedience to God that's scaring you to death right now? What are you doing in your relationships out of obedience to God that is scaring you to death right now? What are you risking in your career? What are you risking at school? What are you risking in your relationships? 
your reputation, your esteem, out of obedience to God. Out of obedience to God. Nothing? Then are we living by faith? Maybe my religion's never really even been about God. Maybe I'm just using this to manipulate God to be more about me. Number five, last. He knew that he just needed to know that it's what God wanted him to do. That's it. And some of you, that's exactly where you're at. I just don't know. If I knew for a fact it's what God wanted me to do, I would do it in a heartbeat. I would. I promise I would. I promise I would. But I don't know. And what if I pick the wrong thing and that's not what God wanted me to do? You ever been there? Some of you might, you might be there right now. I think this tool will help you. I think the very first thing, if you're, if, what, do I, what is God's will for me? I think I can answer this with some measure of direction, not certainty, just direction. I think the first thing you need to do is make sure that your heart is right before God. I think you need to spend at least five minutes in prayer. Dear God, show me if there's any sin in my heart, any area of disobedience in my life. And if you show it to me, God, I'll confess it. I'll admit it's sin, and I'll rearrange my life to be more obedient in that area. And then I'm going to ask you for five more minutes in prayer where I can ask God to show me if there's anything between me and anybody else. I need to make sure there's no unconfessed sin between me and God and no unconfessed sin between me and you. That's what I need to do. Give me 10 minutes and I can stand up a holy and righteous man. Because you can't be any more holy than when you have no unconfessed sin in your heart between you and God. That's it. When you have no, when you have zero unconfessed sin, can you be any cleaner than that? Than when you have zero unconfessed sin? I don't think so. That's it. So give me 10 minutes in prayer. Five minutes for me and God. Five minutes to pray about me and other people. And I make it right. Give me, give me a couple minutes to, to maybe pick up a phone and make it right with them really quick. Right? Like, like I'll do what I need to do. Now the question is, of the options I've got, am I motivated by fear? Because the Bible says it's not a faith, it's sin. So if I'm being motivated by fear to make this decision, it's probably not the right choice. If I'm motivated by pride, six things the Lord hates, the number seven is an abomination to God, and that's pride in our heart. So if this is about me and my glory, don't do it. If this is because I'm afraid that God and his glory can't do it, then don't do it. Anything in between here and here. Just pick. I think we're afraid. I take this step. I take this step. I take this step. And then I take this step, but God wanted me to take this step. Oh, crap. I just screwed up my whole life. We think that's what the will of God is. I don't see that in Scripture. I see people saying things like, perhaps, maybe. I'm going to give this a shot. Is it motivated by fear? No. Is it motivated by pride? No. Is my heart clean? Far as I can tell. Then, bro, pull the trigger. Paint an arrow on the wall and hit it. But dear God in heaven, don't die with your quiver full of arrows because you were too afraid to shoot. Do something. Just do it. Try it. Billy Jane and I, when we moved here in 2001 from Denver, broke down three times across Interstate 80 across the country. The third time we're broken down, I look over at Billy Jane after I've already quit my job, after I've already sold my, our house, and I say, I'm still not 100% sure we should be doing this. Don't say that to your wife ever. <laughs> Especially if you've already quit and you're already homeless and everything you own is on the side of a road and a stupid U-Haul truck. Pinsky was passing me all the time. My dad would be on the radio and he'd go, Pinsky's about to pass. I 
think I'd hate you, Dad. Why are you still should have rented? Doesn't matter. It's not a commercial. My point is, I look over at Billy Jane and I tell her this, and here's what she says. If we did the wrong thing, at least we did the wrong thing for the right reason, and I think God can use that. How'd you get so smart? <laughs> She's right. It's not that I was doing the wrong thing like a sinful thing, but if I was supposed to take this step and I took this step, God can work with this. Why? Because it was between here and here. That's why. Just If God blesses you, it won't be because you moved to Charlotte or you stayed in Boston. Or you became a chiropractor and not a dentist. Or you went to college or you went straight into trade school. If God uses you, it'll be because of the condition of your heart, not the location of your butt. Do something. But don't do nothing. Dear God in heaven, don't let me die with an arrow full of quivers that I was too afraid to shoot. Do something. Somebody's got to fix it. Why not you? I can't make this up. For, I can't make up your mind for you. I, I, I don't know what the failure is that you're facing. But I know that you're not any more afraid of your decision than anybody else in this room has ever been afraid of theirs. And what I do know is that if you don't do anything, it stays broken the way that it is. And the only way it'll ever get better is if somebody does something and I'm going to volunteer. So I'm calling that family member this week. I don't know what you need to do, but dear God in heaven, don't leave that arrow unflung. Let's pray. God, I'm asking in the name of Jesus that you would help us to not be distracted by our wealth. God, I think that we are anesthetized by our sports, by our money, living far beneath our potential and capacity, living lifeless lives. God, please, don't let us end this life with those kind of regrets. Dear God, help us to live for more than dollars. Help us to live to make a difference. God, help us to recognize that 100% of what we've been given has been given by you to be leveraged for you and your kingdom purposes. God, we might fail but the worst thing to happen is not my failure. The worst thing that could happen is not trying to make anything happen. Put big dreams in our hearts and give us courage. Help us to recognize that you're in control of the outcome and that you see our heart and the motivation behind the things that we're going to do that are going to scare us to death. But dear God, don't let us quit in the game right now. Don't let us stay content on the sidelines. Don't let us spend the rest of our life chasing comfort and security when you created us for so much more. That's our prayer. We ask this in the great name of Jesus, and we all say together, amen.